Okay, so here we are in Zechariah chapter 3. And before we start going through this chapter, just want to uh, remind you all of a couple things. So whenever we are in uh, passages or books like Zechariah, some of these minor prophets, there's a few things I want, I've pointed out in some of the previous messages that I just want to remind you all of. Now, if we don't get the historical context of these, it's real easy for a prophecy preacher to come through and to pull things from this passage that just aren't there. And that's something that's very common when it comes to the book of Zechariah and some of the prophecies. But it's also important that we make sure whenever we're studying any passage in the Bible, that we ask ourselves, what did this mean to the people during that time? Because in the book of Zechariah, there are things in there that we can say, you know, these are going to be fulfilled in the future. Correct? All right, we saw that. Uh, we, I think we saw some examples of that last week. But once again, the f- future things that we are getting from here, they, you know, they have to do with the end times. They had a, kind of a different meaning back in that day because they were under the first covenant. And had they obeyed, we're going to see another example of that in here, then things would have played out a little differently than they're going to play out now. So there is kind of a new application that we can make today as Christians, but at the same time, if we fail to understand the original intent of this chapter, then we're going to miss some things and we're going to mess up our interpretation for even what's yet to come. So as we go through this, I think uh, I think you'll see this a little bit better. But look what it says in verse 1. So it says, "...and He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him." Now, in order for us to understand everything that we're supposed to get, because once again, too, when things are symbolic like this in the Bible, it's real easy to, for someone to just kind of come up with their own interpretation, isn't it? And they can start adding all kinds of things. To this that shouldn't be there, but I'm going to show you. You know, I when it comes to how I interpret this chapter, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm right. Okay, and I, I'm pretty sure too that I can prove my interpretation. So, you know, but it, it's not super easy. Okay, hopefully you're paying attention to these things when you're reading it. It's not a super easy one, but here's what we've got to do in order to fully get this chapter and what it's talking about. First, we've got to understand who all the characters are. In this, okay. So notice there, in verse one, Joshua the high priest is mentioned. We uh, we see an the angel of the Lord mentioned in there, and we also see an angel that's talking with Zechariah in this message. All right. So let's so first off, let's look at let's look at these characters. All right. So first off, the angel that's talking with Zechariah. Okay. You it's important that you get this. Because we've got to follow all these characters. I want you to get this in your head. So you have the angel that's talking to Zechariah that's showing him things. Okay, That's what we see in verse 1. This is the same angel that was speaking in chapter 2 and verse 3. Because you see a lot of different angels in these visions. And the one that is talking to him in chapter 2, verse 3, if you just continue reading, you'll see is the angel that's talking in chapter 3, verse 1. Because it says, and he. Well, who's the he? Well, you've got to go back to the previous chapter to figure that out. So it's an angel that's talking with him. Keep that in mind. So we have Joshua. Now, who is Joshua? Joshua was the high priest 
when the book of Zechariah was written. Remember, in the first week we saw how Haggai was written just a couple months before Zechariah was written. And in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. So Joshua that's mentioned here is the high priest during this time. So remember him. So we also have the angel of the Lord that's mentioned. Here in uh, so notice in verse one, it says, uh, and he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And notice this in verse two, and the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand? plucked out of the fire. Now, does that passage sound familiar to anybody? What does it sound like? It sounds like from Jude, doesn't it? Because remember, it talked about Michael the archangel. It said, He doth not bring a railing accusation, but saith the Lord rebuke thee. Okay. Now, But notice what it says here in verse 2. It says, The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee. Okay? So, is this what Jude is referring to? Well, first off, no, it's not. Because there's some differences here. Alright? Say, so, well, there's some things that are similar. Yeah, there's some things that are similar, but at the same time, too, there's some pretty good differences, too. Because Jude 1.9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Do we see him disputing about the body of Moses in here? No. No. And it says, "Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But look, he said the same thing right there. Well, yes, but that's just probably because that's what they say to the devil. It's a good thing. And I think, you know, when, when, if we're facing off with the devil, we don't need to bring against him a railing accusation. We'll just rebuke him in the name of the Lord. And notice too, and I'm going to, and here's another thing we can see too, because, I, what, there's some religion, some weird people think that Michael the Archangel is Jesus. I don't believe that. I believe Michael the Archangel is an angel and Jesus is Jesus. But what they're doing is they're connecting Jude to what we see here in Zechariah because it says, you know, and the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee. But the thing is, if that came from the mouth of the angel, often that counts as the Lord saying it We'll see, because these angels are messengers of the Lord. The angel would come and they would say the exact words that God gave them to say. And we're going to see that in this chapter. And so, it's the Lord speaking. It's the Lord's words, but it's coming from the mouth of the angel. So, you all understand that? So, this doesn't prove that the angel of the Lord or Michael the archangel is Jesus. I do not believe that's the case. I believe it is a separate angel, but if you do see the angel speaking and you see it saying the Lord said, well, that's because they are a messenger of the Lord. These angels don't come to just give their own words and to give their own thoughts. You know, They're speaking on behalf of God. So it does count as the Lord speaking when it says that. So don't let that, don't let that passage mix you up. There is some clear differences, 
from what we see going on in Jude. They're not disputing about the body of Moses. I think this is just what they say when they're facing off with the devil. So we see Satan on there in this passage also, who is, uh, you know, he's resisting. It mentions there in chapter one, and uh, and then a little bit later you'll notice. And, I, and I'm not, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but another character that we see in this chapter it says, "Here now, Joshua the high priest, in verse eight, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at." For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, who do y'all think that is? That is Jesus. Okay, that is Jesus right there. And if you ever ask yourself, why does it call him the branch? You know, what's what's the point of calling him the branch? And the truth is, there's some great significance, and there's a there's some very good there's a very good reason he's referred to as the branch, and just the fact that the prophet here is mentioning the branch here, this is something that should have actually meant something to the people at this time. It has a very uh, clear meaning. There's some real significance to it. And we'll get into that later. Okay, so notice the characters. We have, we have an angel that's talking to Zechariah who's seeing all these things. He sees Joshua the high priest standing there in filthy garments. You've got Satan resisting him. You have the angel of the Lord all there. So keep all these things in mind as we go through this chapter to see how, uh, what message we're supposed to get. Because there is a message that, uh, that is in this passage that's, that's very important. So, it says in verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. So, what is the significance of the filthy garments there. And I personally believe it is a picture of Israel and their sinful condition. I think that I think that's pretty easy to understand. It's a picture of Israel in their uh, sinful condition. Israel was a mess during this time. And they pretty much always were a mess, weren't they? They were they were they were very filthy. And here we have Joshua the high priest who is a you know representative of these people? Here he is in these filthy garments. And in verse four, says the answer and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, "Take away the filthy garments from him." And unto him he said, "Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment." Isn't it interesting how God doesn't want His people in the filthy garments? God doesn't want us dirty. When we go to heaven one of these days, we're not going to be in this sinful condition. There needs to be a change that takes place. Okay? Now what is this change that needs to take place? Is it, you know, our reformation or is this something that God's going to do for us? Okay? Something God's going to do for us. Right now, we can show our faith by trying to clean ourselves up, by sanctifying ourselves, but at the end of the day, we'll never do it to completion. Jesus Christ is going to have to fix us and change us, and He will at the rapture when He changes our vile body into one like His glorious body. But so Joshua, this high priest, he's standing there, he's in the filthy garments, and they're wanting to get rid of these filthy garments. He, this is showing how God is going to clean him up. And a lot of people will too when they're preaching on this, this passage right here, and this is something we don't want to do. We don't want to just read this passage and be thinking, what's for me? What's for us? Okay, what's about us? in this passage, even though there are some things that I think we can say is about us. But we, let's make sure first we get what it meant to them back then. 
Okay, because it does mean something. And if we understand what it meant to them back then, I think it'll help us see what it means for us today. And some people say that Joshua here represents Jesus. And the thing is, that's true. But we must understand, you know, it was this prophecy was originally given to Israel. Okay, so and the truth is, the high priest is a picture of Jesus throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? There's no doubt the high priest is a picture of Jesus Christ. But let's forget what we know about the New Testament. Let's think about the high. Let's put ourselves in an Old Testament mindset. That high priest was one who would give offerings for the sins of the entire nation, wasn't he? There were many things. You know, the, whenever you go back and you read, and we're not going to go back and look at all these, all the details of the some of these annual offerings that the, only the high priest would do. I mean, you just see Jesus all over that. But in the Old Testament, when God originally gave those commands, you know, it would talk about how you know the priest was you know bearing the sins of the people, and he, how he was removing the sins of the people. He, all these things that he did, you know, they were it was for the entire nation of Israel. And we all understand all that was pointed to Jesus Christ, but they didn't understand that back then. So whenever Zechariah originally gives this prophecy, when they see Joshua the high priest standing there in filthy garments, I think it would have been a very clear message to them then that that's us as a people. We are dirty. And we need cleaned up. And God wanted them sanctifying themselves. God wanted them cleaning themselves up. And we uh, we talked about that when we were going through the book of Malachi. It was something he was always calling on them to do. But this position of the high priest, it was it, it's definitely a picture of Christ. And the truth is, today we can look at this passage and see Joshua the high priest standing there. And you know what? We could also say that represents Jesus Christ on the cross, because He who knew no sin became sin for us, didn't He? I mean, Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross. He hung there on the tree, became cursed of God, and God ended up turning His back on Him. He hung there on the cross in darkness saying, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? That is a picture of sin. And just like that high priest, the things that he would do would remove the sins of the people. The things that Jesus Christ did, they remove our sins, don't they? And so, whenever we see this high priest there, I think we ought to see ourselves, but I think we ought to see Jesus Christ bearing our sins. And just like today when we see the cross, we ought to think about Jesus Christ bearing our sins on that cross. But back then, this was basically the prophet pointing out to Israel, you're dirty and God needs to clean you up as a nation. Okay? And we can definitely make a, an application to ourselves there. But that's what he was doing right there. So look at verse 5. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Or I skipped verse 4. Verse 4, And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And, he said, and unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. So verse five and 4 and 5, it's a reminder that it's God that does the cleansing. It's God that's going to change us. It's God that does all these things. Joshua the high priest didn't do it himself. This was, this was something that was done for him. 
And that's what people have got to realize too. We can make application to the work salvation people. You can't clean yourself up. God's got to clean you up. That's why we sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're trying to clean yourself up, you're on your way to hell. God's got to clean you up. He will only, uh, he, he will only accept you if He is the one that cleans you. You can't do it good enough. So now look at verse 6 and 7. This is an important verse here. It says, The angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. So right here is the disclaimer. And make sure you get this, because chapter 3 is another example of God giving a prophecy, but one that has some conditions. But within this prophecy, there are some promises that are made. Now, while the conditions of this uh, prophecy were not kept by Israel, God is still going to keep the promises that He made. God is still going to do His part, but it will play out differently than originally intended. God's part will get done, but Israel's part did not get done because they did not do what they were supposed to do. And see, this is a mistake that the you know the pro-Jew people make. They'll go to Zechariah and they're looking at all these things and they're applying it directly to Israel that's over there today. Not realizing, no, this was something that was meant for Israel back then. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. Now these promises are going to be fulfilled through us as a church. And I'll, and I'll prove that here in a little bit. But right there in chapter 3 is the disclaimer. Because what they'll do when we'll say this isn't for Israel, it's for the church, you're saying God broke His promise. No, I'm saying God kept His promise because it flat out says, if thou wilt walk in My ways and if thou wilt keep My charge, then thou shalt judge My house and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these to stand by. Truth is, if it's going to go to Israel that's over there today, then God lied. Because God said it's only going to happen if you're going to walk in my ways, if you're going to do what I tell you to do, and they didn't do it. So I'm here today to tell you that it's not. this does not have anything to do with physical Israel that's there today because God does keep His promises. And they did not do what they were supposed to do. So since the first priest failed... God brought in Jesus. The first priesthood did not work. They could not get rid of the sins of the people. They couldn't make the people clean. Those sacrifices couldn't take away sins. None of it worked. So God brought in Jesus Christ instead. Now, you say, but wait a minute. What about the rest of these prophecies in here about the branch? Because that's talking about Jesus. Okay, but I'm going to show you while Jesus was always prophesied, there's there was a um, you know it was it was always God's plan, or even in the Old Testament covenant, there was a plan for Jesus Christ to come and be king. And I'm going to show you when it's referring to him, when it's Bible's referring to him as a branch, it's talking about his coming as a king, not as a high priest. Okay, this prophecy here is not about a coming high priest. It's about a coming king. 
in Zechariah, under the Old Covenant, the Levitical priests were supposed to take care of things. And then the king would come. Then the branch would come. But because they didn't do what they were supposed to do when Jesus Christ came the first time, He ended up coming as the high priest to make atonement for sins. And now, when He returns the second time, He will come as the king. So, keep that in mind. So, look at verse 8. Notice what it says. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. Okay? So why is Jesus referred to as the branch? Well, remember where they're at in history. This is after the Babylonian captivity. But if you, you may remember, years before the Babylonian captivity, there were some prophecies given about the branch already. This was not the first prophecy that had been given to Israel about a branch. Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So right there, we see it was prophesied way back in Isaiah's day that there was going to be a, uh, a stem or a rod come forth out of the stem of Jesse. showing This was a prophecy showing that the kingdom of David was going to be restored. Or out of the kingdom of David, I guess I should say, during this time, out of the kingdom of David would come a king that was going to rule and reign in righteousness. Because remember, it was in the line of David, uh, the southern kingdom, they were all in the line of David. And there was a prophecy about a king that was going to come from there that was going to uh, rule and reign in righteousness and do all kinds of things. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Remember, Jeremiah was written shortly before Israel went into captivity. And so this is roughly 70 some years before the Zechariah prophecy. It says in Jeremiah 23 5, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice on the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So clearly another prophecy about Jesus Christ. And it's referring to Him as the branch again. Why? Because He's someone that's coming out of that line of David. He's somebody who's coming out of that family. He's going to rule and reign in righteousness. He's going to have justice. And I love what it calls Him. It says He's going to be called the Lord our righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Because isn't that what we base our salvation on today? Because we're talking about the Lord our righteousness. That's why we don't talk about our works. We don't talk about our works. When we go out soul winning, we don't go tell everybody about us and ourselves and our, our testimony. You know what we do? We preach Jesus. We don't talk about the things that we used to do that we don't do anymore. We don't talk about our way of life. We talk about Jesus Christ. Because He is our righteousness. So we proclaim Him. We do not talk about ourselves. I mean, there's, that's a, there's a great message right there. Look at Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 14. 
It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings to do sacrifice continually. Now get this. Because notice in this prophecy about the branch that there's no doubt that's referring to Jesus and it's saying, you know, he's going to, uh, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. He's going to be king forever. That line, it's going to be restored forever. But then notice in verse 18, neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. Okay? Under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices would have gone on forever. And when it's saying they'll never want a man to do it, it means they'll always have somebody is what that's saying. It's a promise to preserve that Levitical line forever. And remember, the the commands that were given to Aaron and his sons, they were forever. You're supposed to do these things forever. So in this prophecy of the branch, it is a prophecy of Jesus Christ coming as King, but it's not a prophecy of Him coming as a high priest. Under this prophecy, as originally given, the Levites were going to be the priests forever. Under the Old Covenant, if they would have kept it, their line would have been preserved forever. They always would have had somebody so they could do sacrifices continually. They'd just keep on doing it forever. How would they do it? They'd do it in that temple. That Jesus was going to that was Jesus was going to build that we talked about last week, but he didn't. All right, that's not going to happen because Jesus did something better. He offered up his own body as the temple, and there is no future coming temple coming now. Jesus' body is that temple. So I I show you all that to show that this prophecy of a branch it was a prophecy of a coming king, not a prophecy of a coming high priest. So the prophecies of the coming King were given under that old covenant, and they still that that are still yet to come. But Jesus had to come first as the high priest. Why? Because the high priest it was an it was an earthly ministry. It was absolutely necessary that the sins of the people be taken care of before the Lord is going to be able to come and rule and reign in righteousness. And since Israel and since the Levitical priesthood was not able to remove sins, when Jesus Christ came that first time, He removed sins Himself on the cross. He did that for us. And so these these promises of the branch that are to come, they're kind of postponed. They're kind of put on hold for a while, but they still will come to pass. These things, will they, they still will happen it's just it's going to be yet in the future. I don't according to the old covenant as it was originally given, it wasn't supposed to be that far away. It should have happened two thousand years ago, but it did. And so here we are now. So look at verse nine. We're going to go back to some of these passages in a little bit. I'm going to point out something else that I think is interesting. But uh, first, let's look at verse nine. It says, "For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua." 
Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So what does that passage mean? You know, because that's kind of interesting. It talks about a stone that he laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Let me ask you, what do you all think that stone is? That stone that was laid before Joshua is Jesus. Now, what makes you think it's Jesus? What what tipped you off in that passage? He's the cornerstone. What else did it say about that stone? Something you don't see too much on stones. Yeah, seven eyes. Now, that rings a bell for us too, doesn't it? Now, thankfully, we have the New Testament to help us with some of these uh, difficult passages. But, uh, uh, what passage is that from? Uh, Look look at Revelation Revelation 5. Revelation 5 and verse 6. So, we're all familiar with this passage of Scripture right here. It says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And I said, well, are you sure you can connect that with Zechariah? Well, I think I can. Because, here's the question, what are the seven spirits of God? You know, what are the seven spirits of God? Well, actually, we can find out in Isaiah chapter 11, a passage we already looked at. In a passage where it referred to him as the branch. In Isaiah chapter 11, in verse 2, uh, after, it's, after it says, There shall come forth out of a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch. Look what it says. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Right? There's seven spirits, aren't there? So I think it's pretty safe to say that it's okay for us to connect what we saw there in Revelation with what we see here in Zechariah since Zechariah definitely is connected to Isaiah chapter 11 that refers to Jesus as the branch. So this, there's, there's no doubt about it. Here in chapter 3 and verse 9, this stone that it's referring to here is a picture of Jesus Christ. Why, why is it doing this? You know, I believe this is just once again, a reminder that Jesus Christ is the focal point of everything. He is what it is all about. He is what people should have been looking for. He, I mean, and think about this. In these passages where it refers to this king as the branch, it refers to him as being called the Lord our righteousness. Yet what happened when the branch showed up? When he's preaching to the people, what are they doing? They're talking about their righteousness. When John the Baptist is preaching to them, they're saying that within themselves, you know, we have Abraham as our father. They're thinking we keep the law. They're coming to Jesus, the branch. You know, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? They're, he's saying this thinking I'm, you know, I'm doing all these commandments. Thinking I'm definitely going to get commended by Jesus. That was their problem they had. They're praying. You know, Lord, you know, I give tithes of all that I possess. I do this, I do that. I'm not like that publican. Was Israel proclaiming their righteousness or Jesus' righteousness during this time? They were proclaiming their own righteousness. And that's one of the main reasons they missed it when Jesus Christ comes and He's preaching to these people. 
They didn't see their sinful condition. And then they're turning around they're accusing Jesus of having a devil. They're accusing Him of all kinds of things. Why did they do that? Because they were just wicked. They were a wicked, wicked people. And even though they had these prophecies, and they should have been able to go back and look at these things. I mean, those passages are pretty clear when it's referring to this king and saying he's going to be called the Lord our righteousness. They should have, they should have, they should have understood this. Just you know, based on the scriptures that they had back then, and that's not even some of the clearest scriptures. You know, you have, I mean, in the Old Testament too, they're constantly being reminded of their filthiness. It was in the Old Testament that said all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So since they had those Scriptures, they should have been looking for someone who was going to come and be righteous themselves. And the fact that they were able to look at Jesus and not see His righteousness just showed their wicked heart. Why? Because people, they often see things and they perceive things as they are in their own hearts. And because they had a wicked heart, everything they saw Jesus do seemed wicked in in their eyes. It was just a reminder of how bad they actually were. So, so let's go back to verse 9. So no doubt about it, that verse, that stone, it's talking about Jesus Christ, where behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the engraving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Okay, now, this is a passage to where the dispensationalists are going to come along and they all want to try to apply this to Armageddon. When Jesus Christ returns at Armageddon, He's just going to come and He's going to remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Well, there's, there's a problem with that. Okay? How is He going to do that? Okay? Now, let's, let's think about this. If the dispensationalists are right, if this passage is about something that's going to happen after, the, after Armageddon, how is he going to remove their iniquity? Is he going to offer up a sacrifice? Because that seems to fly in the face of a lot of what we read in the New Testament. Now, a lot of them would probably say yes. He's going to build. You know, he's going to go into that new temple, or he's going to do. No, that just that destroys the book of Hebrews if some kind of sacrifice is made when Jesus Christ comes back. How will he remove the sin? and all that land in one day. That's something that they need to be able to give an answer to. Because here's the problem. The last time I looked, there's only one thing that can wash away sins, and that's the blood of Christ. And that already happened. His blood was already shed. So how, how does that work? Well, uh, first off, He did remove the iniquity of Israel spiritually when He died on the cross. Look what it says in Acts 3.26. It says, Unto you first God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning turning away every one of you from His iniquities. Okay, Did Jesus Christ already turn them away from their iniquities? Yes, He did that when He died on the cross. And Romans 11.26 says, and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer that shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. For this is My covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now, even on our side, there's kind of mixed ideas on is Romans 11 fulfilled or is it not fulfilled? Well, spiritually, it's completely fulfilled. 
Spiritually, Romans 11 is fulfilled. Out of Zion came and delivered. Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross. He removed sins spiritually. But folks, do we still have our sins physically? Yes, we do. We still have our sins physically. But spiritually, we don't. Spiritually, they're taken care of. That's already been taken care of. But when Jesus Christ returns, He will remove them physically too, won't He? Physically, so there is a physical fulfillment of Romans 11 that needs to take place. But spiritually, it's already happened. Spiritually, it's already done. Acts 3, verse 26 proves that. So the truth is, Jesus removed the iniquity of Israel when He died on the cross. Spiritually. But here's the thing. When He returns, all those who have not been saved, you know, they're going to end up paying for their sins during that time. Because what's going to happen at Armageddon? At Armageddon is when He comes and He begins to rule and reign in righteousness. He's going to be killing a whole lot of people. And if you all think He's going to spare a bunch of people just because of their physical lineage as if He were a respecter of persons, you're crazy. He's not going to, The only way anyone's going to be spared during that time is if they're already saved. If they've already called the Lord for salvation, otherwise, the way He's going to remove the sins of the other people is by killing them. You know how He's going to get the sin out of Israel? He's going to kill all the sinners. That's how He's going to do it then. So the truth is, if we want to be on the good end of things in Israel when He returns, we need to get saved now. That's why the Bible says, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. The people that wait until then, you know, they're... You know, the sin's going to get removed from that land, but it's going to be because they are removed from that land. So the physical fulfillment, it is something that is to come. It has not come yet. So look at verse 10. It says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Now what does that mean? You know, that's kind of a... A confusing passage. When I read, I read that. I read that. I read that. I was like, "What? What does that even mean?" And so, what I just, the way I figured it out, what it meant, I basically I searched for other similar references in the Bible, and I found a couple. And when you go and you look at other places in the Bible where it says the same thing, all of a sudden it's real obvious what that means. So look at uh, look at Kings chapter four and verse twenty five, and I'll show you what this means and how this uh, chapter ends. It says, "...and Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon." So basically what that's saying there in verse 10, "...in that day said the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree?" It's basically showing they're going to be at peace. They're going to be at rest during that time. Because that's why you want a king like Jesus, isn't it? That's why you want a good king. You want one that's going to keep you safe. You want one that's going to protect you. You want to be able to dwell under your vine and under your fig. And you want to be able to enjoy the fruit and the food and the nourishment that it produces without worrying that somebody's going to come and steal it and take it. Which is something that they had to worry about quite a bit back then. You say, well, that's not clear enough. Well, look at Micah chapter 4. It says the same thing in Micah chapter 4. In verse 4, it says, "...but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it." So it's basically just a reference to show 
they're at peace. And that everything's safe. Everything's good. It would be like if I was talking to you and I was talking about, you know, and that day, every man will be sitting, you know, on a beach in their lawn chair or something. You know, what am I doing? I'm trying to, I'm trying to present a picture of just peace and pure joy and relaxation. And, you know, back in these days, you know, they had to worry about food all the time, didn't they? They had to worry very much about famines and things that could come through that, I mean, famines often would just wipe people out because there, there would be no food. And during this time, they're not going to have to worry about that. You know, of the fruit of his, um, in Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And, uh, and, then it's, uh, and, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counsel of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then it talks about of the increase of his kingdom. There shall be no end. The Ruckmanites, they say that means his kingdom is going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, meaning we're going to have to expand to other planets and inhabit the universe. That's what they teach. But increase in the Bible, that's what the land produces that we consume. You know, you want your field to produce an increase. Why? So you can eat it. So you can survive. And the increase of Jesus' kingdom will have no end. In other words, the food's never going to run out. There will always be enough. We will always have what we need. We're not going to have to worry that someone else is going to come along and try to steal what we have because they don't have enough. We're going to be able to dwell under our vine and under our fig and be at peace. That's what we have to look forward to. And this is what Zechariah is prophesying to Israel. So keep this in mind. When Zechariah is given this prophecy, it's when they are about ready to build this temple. So they should be getting excited. They've been in captivity for 70 years. Now God is allowing them to rebuild this temple. And He's telling them, if you all walk in My ways, if you'll do what you're supposed to, if you'll do what I've commanded you, I'm going to raise up that branch. And He's going to come and during His kingdom, you're going to dwell safely. He's going to get rid of your enemies. Things will be great in the land. You're going to be happy. There will always be a Levite. You're never going to lack a Levite. They'll be able to do those sacrifices. So that's a lot of animals to kill. Well, hey, the increase of His kingdom, there's going to be no end. There will be plenty. They'll all, you'll always have everything you need. You'll never need to worry. You're never going to have to worry. Somebody's going to come along and steal everything. Look at all these wonderful promises that He gave to Israel, but they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They did not do it so the prophecies of Zechariah, they never had, they never were fulfilled. Those things never happened during their time. Whenever the branch did show up, they rejected him, didn't they? They rejected him. So as a result of that, Jesus Christ, he came that first time, and he fulfilled our fulfilled the role as high priest. And He removes sins. And, yet, and so now we're living in a time where because Israel failed on their end, God has given an opportunity for the last 2,000 years for the rest of the world to be included in these promises that He originally gave to Israel. And all those who are saved, all those who are of faith, will be able to claim these. And so the branch, He did come the first time but he didn't ended up not coming as the branch because he was rejected. But when Jesus Christ comes the next time, 
He will come as the branch. He will establish His kingdom. He will dwell on this earth with us. And we'll call Him the Lord, our righteousness. And we will be safe during that time. We will be at peace. And this, what we see there at the end of chapter 3 is something, yes, that now we have to look forward to. Yes, there is some future application now, but you all see how it's a little different than originally intended because in verses 6 and 7, we do see the disclaimer in there. Israel did not do what they were supposed to do. And so another great lesson that we can learn from this chapter is it is a reminder that our righteousness is in the Lord. This passage is one that you ought to remind all the work salvation people about who think they're going to get to heaven on their own. They're making the exact same mistake that Israel made. The exact same mistake. We, and it's, it's sad that people just never learn their lesson. But the truth is, the people who don't learn their lesson on this, it's because they have an evil heart. If they would actually look to Christ, if they would actually go towards the light, then their deeds would be made manifest. And they would see themselves as a sinner and realize Jesus is the only way. So, With that, let's go ahead and, and pray. Lord, we thank You so much. For Your Word, we thank You, Lord, for being our righteousness. We thank You for being our High Priest. Lord, I pray You'll help us to uh, rem- always remember that. Help us to try to uh, continue to proclaim that truth that there is no hope of salvation without Your righteousness. And I just pray that You'll uh, help us see many more people saved. And Lord, we thank You for uh, these promises of things to come that we have to look forward to. I'm looking forward to that day where You come and uh, You rule and reign and we don't have to deal with all the corruption in our government that we do today. And uh, Lord, we thank you for these promises. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and.